Hello, welcome back everybody. We are coming at you again with a guest and it's a brand new, shiny, out of the box guest who we haven't had on the podcast before. (laughs) A guest from outside this building, isn't it? We're not just dragging staff in from the corridor. We have got uh, Paul Warren who uh, was recommended to us by the mighty Judith Neen, who is a regular guest on this podcast. So, Paul, would you like to tell our listeners uh, who you are and what it is that you do? Hello. I feel I'm going to be a bit of a disappointment now. You've said all that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my name's Paul Warren. I actually work at the moment for Cavilli Local Authority. I'm the school improvement lead. But before that, I was a head teacher in um, two schools in Cavilli. Prior to that, I was a deputy and a head in London. And... Just because I love teaching and I love to see what's going on in the classroom that I've been involved with Cardiff Met over the last couple of years and I've been doing a bit of research based around comics in the classroom. Comics. And this is to do with that uh, perennial problem of, of boys and their engagement. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I think when I was a young teacher, uh, first in the classroom, I think one of the issues that it was faced all the time was around boys and you know, they just didn't like doing English lessons, really. And I always found that I'd go to other teachers in the school and I'd say, you know, what can I do? I've got these couple of boys, they don't want to read. You know, it's meant to be silent reading time. They go to the library corner, they just look and stand there, they choose a book, they go back and sit down again, they don't actually read anything, and they're just not getting it. And the and the writing's poor, they just don't have any expectation on their work, what can I do? And when I went to see these teachers, you know, these senior teachers for advice, they'd say, well, join the club, we've all got that problem. And I think over the years, I was baffled and I was trying to address the issue. And I'd ask lots of different people, I'd go to on courses, I'd ask advisors within the local authority what I could do, and they'd say the same thing. They'd say things like, oh, well, you know, if you want to engage boys, Look in terms of what, you know, the, the, the literature that's available in the classroom. Sport. Give them a book about sport. They love reading about sport. And really, it didn't go anywhere. I tried it. But I, I think after 20 years in a school, I just got fed up. The fact that I couldn't find an answer to my problem that I'd had since I was NQT. Mm-hmm. And, and just for the listener's sake, Paul, are you coming from a secondary or a primary background? I'm coming from a primary background. It's interesting, though, my current role is primary and secondary mm-hmm. so I oversee about 86 schools in Caerphilly and I would say that it's just not it's not just a primary issue I would say that actually if you don't get it right in primary the issue is bigger uh, the greater issue in secondary because you've got to capture their love of books the love of English at primary level but it's something that is across all phases of education yeah I think as a secondary specialist I was aware that some boys had a bit of an issue with English as a subject. I don't think I realised the extent to which it goes all the way back to primary. Yeah, and I suppose there's always been that, you know, there's lots of work and lots of research on, you know, the differences between boys and girls and is it kind of a biological, is it a nurture issue? And, you know, and that debate will go on forever. I think that fundamentally, you know, boys' attainment is poorer than girls in English. And we've just got... I suppose the research was trying to address that so I could, you know, just answer the problem that I faced with really on a yearly basis with the pupils in my class. And in terms of your own academic career, this is for your doctorate, isn't it? Yeah, so it's for my doctorate. I think, you know, the reasons for doing a doctorate were that I was the person in charge, I was a head teacher, and 
I'd got to a point where I was really comfortable as a head teacher. I was in a successful school and I thought, you know, it'd be really good to challenge myself a little bit more because it is all about learning. It's all about reflecting on our practice. And I thought it'd be really good to put myself in a situation where I wasn't the boss and somebody was advising me on an aspect of, of, of work that I could improve on. So I thought it'd be really good to look at it within the context of the doctorate. But I thought it was really important that doing the doctorate was about being better at the job. It wasn't because I wanted to be doctor somebody who won about the title, but I wanted the challenge. That's great. And where are you, can I ask? Because we're, we're, we're at the very start line, aren't we, of, uh, of our doctorate. Yeah, so where, where right. are you? I'm at towards the end, thankfully. <gasps> oh. I know, I know. So um, it's uh, it's been a really long process and it's been, it has been, I wanted to be challenged. It has been challenging. And um, yeah, so I'm at the point now I've done the methodology section. I've done the literature review. I've done the research in the classes. I've just got to write it up now. Mm. And uh, it just takes, t- <laughs> I say I've just got to write it up. It just takes time. But uh, yes. yeah, I'm hoping to get done before the end of the year. So, I mean, obviously you, you must have engaged with a, a real kind of massive body of literature, lots of reading you've, you've engaged yourself in. So t- tell us kind of some nuggets of, of okay, what you found. Okay, I'm going to say, I'm going to go back actually to when I was about four. Okay. And I, and I read my first comic. So um, I did, I remember going into a newsagent's in, yeah, in Newport somewhere. And I remember seeing that first comic on the shelf and it was a like a Superman comic. Mm. Um, and there was something really engaging about it. And it was really, whether it was around kind of the bright colours or it was around the action within the comic, it really got my attention and it got me reading. So it was that really early experience. Mm. Then I was a bit older. I started reading some of the weekly British comics around, based on humour, things like the Beano, Wizard Chips, Whoopi comic. I still remember them. And they were around these kind of mischievous characters that just got up to pranks Mm -hmm. and did things that as a boy I wouldn't dare do because I was just too good to do stuff like that. (laughs) But um, it was, uh, you know, I remember, and and it was that kind of engagement that really resonated with me that when I was older as a teacher, I thought, I wonder if I can tap into this. Mm. So when I started the doctorate work, yeah, there was some research I started looking at. One was around a book by a chap called Scott McLeod, and it's called Understanding Comics. And whether you're interested in comics or not, I'd really recommend this book because it's really easy to read and it's actually presented as a comic book. And it talks about why we engage with comics. And there was a real, there was a really critical bit of learning for me in that because when McLeod is describing illustrations, he says that the simpler the illustration, the more we connect with it. So he presents a really detailed picture of a person's face that's really detailed. And then he presents a very simple illustration in the style of something like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And he says, actually, that when it, the, the emotion is very simple on a, an illustration, people connect with that. So if the face is looking happy, we've all felt happy in our lives. If the face is looking um, cross. We've all been angry in our lives. And it's that simple connection that helps us engage with what's on the page. That was a really powerful bit of learning for me, because actually, when I think about it, and I think about the type of texts that boys or, or children are drawn to, it was very much around, you know, often it would be these books that have these kind of simple illustrations in. So it was a real learning experience that was for me. And it kind of steered me forward in terms of kind of the research. So then you decided to carry out a piece of action research in your own school. Yes. So I was headed across two schools at the time and 
I, I'd looked into, you know, the literature reviewer told me, you know, having been told for many, many years that you need to give reluctant boys a books on sport. Actually, the research, the literature review had absolutely nothing to do about that in it. So it was all about action was really a powerful way to kind of engage because when you look at the panels on a page, one panel of a comic to the next is very action focused because obviously you think of battles and fights or whatever. They also talk about humour is a real way in for reluctant readers. The use of bright colours, that was another thing that came in. So I wanted to test that really within across the two schools. So we undertook um, a pilot study, first of all, which was um, using the Beano comic and using a Spider-Man comic. So we, um, all the children were taught by me because I thought it was good for the head teacher to teach once in a while. And I was observed by the teachers and it was really interesting in terms of the impact that this action research project had. You know, the engagement, the pupil engagement was really good. There were some um, aspects of the research that came out that weren't expected. For example, I gave, uh, one, one, one lesson I gave was the, they had um, the Beano comic and they had the story of Dennis the Menace and they all took the parts of the characters in the, on the page and in actual fact, with coming back to the idea about the emotions being very clear in the faces, it gave the reader an indication of how to deliver the line. So their drama, their reading skills, you know, their, the expression they used was so much better mm. as a result of having those visual, the visuals in front of them with those clear emotions in the faces of the characters. Fascinating. You know, things like that were really interesting. And, uh, mm. and that's something we developed more when we went on to do the, the main study after that. Can I ask a question, just backtracking a little bit? Um, you mentioned a kind of turning point that happened when you were reading, which was it kind of dispelled some of those long-held maybe myths that had been shared to you by others that were maybe rooted in kind of tacit knowledge and understanding and not kind of concrete research findings. How did you feel when that happened? Yeah, you're right. I think over the years, myths are shared... And there's no, and sometimes there isn't the evidence behind it to support it. We've all been told things, and certainly from my point of view, I get told things that are in pieces of research, therefore must be true. I then actually go back and read the research, and actually it's just a person's interpretation, which is absolutely not mine either. Mm. I suppose it's, there's nothing more powerful than discovering for yourself what works within the context of you as a teacher. Mm. So although it's really helpful to have advice from others around you, I think sometimes finding out for yourself is a much more powerful way of learning the truth. Has that changed your perspective? I know at the moment you're you're not working as a head teacher, but I suppose, you know, even in your school improvement role, has that changed how you feel about research um, for the teaching profession? Yeah, it has actually, because it's it's interesting around doing the doctorate because I've been moaning for like the last six years about doing a doctorate. It's my own fault. I wanted to do it. <laughs> uh, but I've been moaning about it because I've been saying to my tutors, you don't understand the pressure I'm under in schools. You know, we talk about research being very evidence-based, being long-lasting, being very meaningful, being very reflective. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. And then I'll say, yeah, but the reality is in school, you know, I've got data. I'm, I'm accountable for data. I've got Estin going to turn up any minute. I've got, you know, I've got, I've got, a, I'm answerable to parents. I'm answerable to 
governors. And then during the school day, there might be a health and safety issue. There might be an HR issue. Yeah. You know, all these things. And I would say, look, I haven't got time to implement the piece of research as it's meant to be done. And I've moaned about this for years. Recently, however, I've realized that actually, if I'm going to, you know, if I was going to continue or as a, as a head teacher or promoting to the head teachers around me what makes an effective school, absolutely it's based on the principles that I'm showing through the research. So there's that work by, um, that was in the Harvard Review, wasn't it, a couple of years ago around what makes effective leadership. Mm-hmm. And they talk around surgeons and architects. And actually, the approach I've been was very much that surgeon that everything's got to be a quick fix. It's all about accountability. I've got to drive up standards quickly. Mm-hmm. Where the architect type of head teacher is actually, you know, implements something that's much more inclusive, that's more long lasting, that's really focused on kind of the quality of teaching and change happens over time. Mm-hmm. Now, that mm-hmm. is the model that I would aspire to be if I was still a head teacher or even a teacher in my class. Yeah. And research fits into that kind of way of working. So where I've been moaning for the last six years, I actually got it wrong. I should have been (laughs) more um, forward thinking about things. Thank you for indulging me on that line of of inquiry. (laughs) (laughs) I find myself mischievously wondering whether all head teachers should be doing doctorates. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I wouldn't wish that on them. <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps they should be doing action research, you think? I mean, action research for any listeners who are, who are not enjoying uh, doing educational research, that's when simply you just test something out in your school environment, I guess. It's... Yeah, so there's a whole notion. There's clear steps within action research, and it's the planning stage where you look in terms of, you know, what do you want to achieve out of the research? And for this one, you know, I based it on my personal experience of reading comics myself. I based it on the issues within the school around boys lack of attainment in English based on the literature review and from that from the planning we then um, worked together as a school and we implemented this program of work based around using comics and then we tested it reflected on it and we adapted and we changed and we changed the course in terms of how we're going to do it based on our findings so it's been really useful as a school because it's been something that's brought us together as well because you know regardless of whether you're as I said at the start regardless whether you're foundation phase practitioner you're key stage two or you're secondary you know this issue around boys attainment affects us all Mm. so this approach that we can take you know so it's good to work together as as a collective and and approach the research. So before we start to talk about your kind of initial findings that you've yet mm. to write about, <laughs> talk to us about, you, you talked about the challenges of kind of balancing your own kind of research outputs with the role of being a head teacher. But were there any other challenges that you experienced, you know, just conducting that research, any ethical implications that you had to navigate? So the personal challenges were around what does um, good research look like? Mm-hmm. I was under this delusion that to write good research it had to be impenetrable in the sense of the words Mm -hmm. on the page Mm -hmm. and to sense that I wasn't worthy because at the end of the day I was just a primary practitioner and I wasn't an academic so I think there was that personal barrier I had to overcome and actually when I started I started to realize over time that if I couldn't understand the research maybe it just wasn't very good research in the first place you know, it has to be able to communicate yes. to the, the stakeholders around you, the people around you. Yeah. So that was my, my personal one. I think from an ethical point of view, you know, I've talked around the making sure the distinction between the head teacher and the researcher was very clear mm-hmm. because, you know, as head teacher, I've got a duty to raise standards. 
And I had to come to the research with a bit of an understanding that comics would have an impact. If I was going to prove that comics weren't going to have an impact on pupils' education, then I would be doing a very, you know, morally, that would be very wrong as a, as a head teacher as well. Mm-hmm. So there, there was that ethical dilemma. I think that was the main ones, really, in terms of the head teacher role I had to. So I guess the next juicy question is, what have you found thus far? Okay, so it's really exciting in a nerdy kind of way. Pupil engagement is, as I say, is much better in terms of when I delivered the lessons and when the teachers delivered the lessons and we put the Beano comics in front of them. Mm-hmm. It was great because, first of all, you know, the first part of the lesson was, well, just explore together. Now, often when you've got just a, a normal book, just a text heavy book, mm-hmm. And if you were to ask pupils to explore that text in front of them, those readers who weren't so competent would just get lost. They won't bother. They're going to opt out within five seconds, I imagine. Mm. With that visual and the text on the page and the bright colours and the focus on action, you are going to engage everyone in that room and they're going to start talking. And I could see it in front of me. I could see them talking to each other, pointing at different aspects on the page and laughing about what's going on. So there was that instant engagement with the text. And as I said, when we did the, we asked them to act it out, you know, their improvement in their uh, their reading, in their expression, in their the way they took on the roles of the characters was really, you know, great to see. Mm-hmm. And I saw boys that haven't really engaged in that kind of process before, mm-hmm. really engaged, and we saw a significant improvement I think in terms of writing skills, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen some really good um, examples of how some of the less able pupils have improved their writing. So, for example, we presented the pupils with a pa- uh, two pages from a Spider-Man comic where he um, fights against this villain. And one of the things we normally do is we would model together a piece of descriptive writing, working together, building on each other's ideas to produce a kind of piece of quality work. Yes. When the visuals are up on the page, uh, in front of the the pupils, everyone can contribute and they were able to make descriptions from the visuals, not just from the words itself, Mm -hmm. and were able to contribute to that. So as a result, the quality, the overall quality of the model, the shared model piece of work was much more inclusive Mm-hmm. and represented the whole class, not just the brighter children. Mm. But then when, so that gave those reluctant pupils um, a greater sense of confidence about writing. When they were then asked to write their own independent piece of work based on a similar kind of idea, mm. uh, the quality of their work was better, not just in the content, but actually in things like the presentation as well. And in terms of when we ask all people to self-assess their work afterwards, the self-assessment was much better as well. Wow. So it was mu- there was really good evidence of, of how that worked. We also did some group reading sessions as well with some of our more able pupils because mm-hmm. I was interested in the less able. I was actually interested in thing. I didn't want a situation where the research showed that actually if you have comics in the classroom, you're less able to do well. You know, what about that group of your more able achievers? Sure. We did some group um, reading sessions with the more able readers and there was good evidence that it stretched their abilities too and their kind of understanding around higher order reading skills. So we've got some real clear evidence that in in the right environment, um, comics can have a, a good impact. And I guess kind of trying to sort of be provocative here, 
the hope I would imagine is that they are able to to transition or to enjoy both types of text. So have you got any thoughts about how how you might help those reluctant boys to transition from you know fostering that engagement that love of reading via comics to a wider love of different forms of of written language i mean i suppose one of the when i'm writing up at the moment you know i'm identifying kind of some of the issues around the research as well Mm. obviously as we would you know there are a couple one of them one of the issues is that you know where is the evidence that the skills acquired in those sessions is going to transfer to sessions that don't involve comics mm. and I, I haven't got the answer to that okay. you know that, that would be the next bit of research so when I come back in 10 years time and I'll have another go at that one yeah yeah but um yeah so that would be one of the issues we need to look at you know the anecdotal evidence from the teachers in the in the involved in research said actually those sessions really improve their confidence mm. you know we did them around the January time if I recall and the evidence was that actually that gave them a real bit of a bit of a push, a bit of a confidence boost that they went on to continue to kind of make good progress in their work. But there's nothing scientific about that. That's just the anecdotal stuff I got back from teachers. I think the other issue around the research is that we had to put a lot of work into it. Yeah. And one of the real barriers around the research in the first place is that, you know, I might have read comics as a boy, but there are many teachers, many practitioners who don't read comics and have never read comics and don't understand what, you know, an impact a comic can have. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting with a, a teacher and I was explaining to her, she just couldn't understand how you actually read the narrative because, you know, she's, she's used to reading from left to right sure. on a page and she couldn't um, navigate the text and visuals at the same time to construct a meaning around what's happening on the page. Mm. So, you know, it, sometimes it can be as basic as that. Comics aren't embedded within the school curriculum, mm. the way that novels are, the way that I say drama scripts, even poetry. Yeah. As a medium, they're relatively new. Yes. So they need longer time to embed within our understanding, within our our understanding of what literature is. So there are a host of issues that the research is telling me. So I would say that absolutely comics can have an impact, but there are a number of barriers and that's around teachers understanding of the of the medium it's around the skills and knowledge how to teach using them mm. and i think we're it's we're at a very early stage of that so it can happen but mm-hmm. there's a number of things fighting against it i guess that points to um for our listeners it points to some good kind of uh, starting things to consider if they want to introduce comics uh, into their own schemes of work oh absolutely you've got to go for it because um you know, just seeing the engagement as a start, even if you've got, you know, you might do a session during the day when you, they've got time just to read. And I think it's that's so valuable, those sessions. Sometimes those sessions can be squeezed out of the school day. But actually, just a chance for a child to sit down and have a chance to engage with a with a text is, is, is wonderful. And even if within your classes you've got some comics, you've got some Beano comics, you put them there in front of them and just let them get on with it and have it read together, you will see an interest in, in what they're reading and an engagement with it. And we've had a number of episodes on the podcast where we've been uh, wrestling with the new Welsh curriculum and the fact that subjects are going to be more connected in future. And, and you've got some nice suggestions there for ways that, that comics can potentially make those meaningful connections with some other subject areas. Well, I suppose in, in terms of, you know, we hear a lot about authentic learning and very child initiated. I mean, you think about, I, I, you know, we've had Comic Con on the weekend, haven't we? 
with all the Marvel films. You know, it's very much embedded within popular culture, isn't it? So there's a there's a lot of excitement around you know these characters at the moment. So certainly, you know, you've got their interest straight away. So why not exploit that interest in the classroom and get them to help them to learn and develop their literacy skills? And I guess they also, you know, if if there are any sort of critics of of sort of dumbing down the curriculum, you know, there might be some choice perspectives on the Marvel Universe. But there are, I'm, I'm sure that quite a lot of Shakespeare's plays have been reproduced as graphic novels. Well, it's really interesting that because, um, yeah, I suppose that the, the resources that you, you've got to be careful about the comics you use because when I was doing the research, I mm. found a lot of the stuff was really inappropriate. So, <laughs> for example, you know, some things were blatantly very sexist, mm. you know, in terms of some of the kind of the things that the, you know, the female superheroes were wearing. Mm. There's a character called Harley Quinn. Yeah. And uh, she had, you know... It's just totally unsuitable. Um, and also, a lot of the comics are quite violent. Mm. So you've got to be careful about, if you're sharing this kind of resource with with pupils, that mm. if they go home and talk about it and mm. to their parents, you're likely to get a lot of complaints. Mm. So, you know, I, my advice would be stick to stuff like the Beano. Um, there are all ages comics out there, which are really good. Um, there's the Phoenix Presents, which is a a series of comic books and they are designed for all ages. There are superhero comics that are designed for all ages, but make sure you, you, you get the right ones. Mm, um, mm, that's a good point. It speaks to a, a bigger point about how we kind of select texts for young people, yeah. how they maybe reinforce gender stereotypes. Absolutely. You know? But interesting, you know, you say about Shakespeare. Mm. We So when I did the main study, I let the teachers choose the comics resources. So I'd given a bit of guidance. The teachers who were still not quite on board with the idea of using comics in the classroom used um, a set of books. They're called classical comics, and they take traditional texts. You know, they take Shakespeare, Dickens, yeah, um, and they put them in comic form. Interesting. They're okay. Okay. They were okay, but they didn't have the results with the pupils, such as things like the Beano, such as kind of the superhero comics, because they just engaged with it more. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really interesting. So so they do serve a purpose and they're helpful to kind of retell the story in simple terms. Mm. But it's I suppose it doesn't matter so much what the text is, as long as you can use it in a really purposeful way. Lovely. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, Um, is there anything else you would like to say about your research before we move on to some of our extra bits? Just that, you know, research can be really formal sometimes. And essentially, research is just finding out and just being, having that kind of inquiry in mind about wanting to learn something. And it doesn't matter whether it's a doctorate or a master's or whatever, you know, it's really good to have that idea of practice within your classroom. And just coming back to the point we said at the start of the discussion around firsthand um, finding out firsthand is I think it's the most powerful way that you can do so yeah absolutely it's something as all practitioners we should be reflective we should have this inquiry in mind and I I think it's really exciting this is something that we're promoting now as teachers it's a really welcome message for our listeners thank you Paul okay so you know we've got these extra slots and I know that you've got some ideas that you would like to share based on your experience in how to keep your well-being in check and you have a particular message for student teachers who are transitioning to their NQT year yeah absolutely so I'm thinking back to when I was a uh, an NQT in my first year and I'm thinking and I'm thinking back what made my well-being um what was good for my well-being there's a couple of things actually and I'm going to talk around 
from my point of view of your classroom and then I'll talk about something else in terms of your induction year really mm-hmm. I think from a, an NQT I mean what made me feel happy when I went in the morning is that I walked into a tidy classroom <laughs> because um, I think classroom organization is really important having an environment that you like being in mm-hmm. makes a huge difference so I was really strong on my learning environment being a special place because I used to spend all day, every day in the classroom with the pupils. And I wanted to be in an environment that I, I really liked and I thought really was conducive to pupils' learning. So I made sure everything was really clear in terms of you know where all the resources were. I made sure my displays really celebrated the work going on in the classroom. And I loved that. And I loved coming in so I might do a display and then the next morning I couldn't wait to come in and see how the display looked the next day as if anyone had changed it. That was really great for me, having a kind of a clean environment because that's where I worked all day. The other thing for me that really helped is that I didn't work in isolation because teaching can be a little bit lonely sometimes because you're spending the day in the classroom with the pupils and obviously, you know, if you're going to if you're going to go into the teaching profession, you're going to love being with children, with students, aren't you? That's the whole purpose of being there. But I really welcomed at the end of the day having the opportunity to sit with some of my peers and just mark and and discuss the day because otherwise I would have gone home at the end of the day and I wouldn't have that time to really talk and reflect around what had happened. Mm. So it was really powerful that just that opportunity that we would all mark together, we'd have a, a bit of a pact, we'd sit in the same room, we'd get our marking done, we'd talk about the day, we'd have a bit of a laugh as well. But then that allowed me to go home and then I could relax for the evening because what I found when it wasn't working, I would go home and I'd spend the night marking and working on my working on the next day when actually it's better to have a focused time in school after work with your colleagues go home and then you can switch off for the night it's really great advice i would say for any um nqts who are or or even if you go into a new school next year and you might have done your nqt year and you're moving on i think really push around induction and what induction looks like in the school you know when you go to a new school you've got a right to an induction program. Now that can be, obviously for NQTs, that's going to be more extensive. But if you've even been working for a couple of years, it's really good to have that kind of re-induction process because every school is unique and, and will be very different. And the, and the vision and the values of the head and the governors and the staff you know, will, will vary from school to school. Clearly, we're all in it to improve standards for pupils, but there is variance between schools. So I would, you know, so if I was an NQT... I would politely, you know, in my first week, I'd have a conversation with you know, one of the, the deputy or the head maybe and ask who the induction mentor is going to be. Because, you know, all NQTs are entitled to a, a, a length of time for NQT time during the week. But that's not extra PPA time. That is an opportunity to really explore and develop your own professional practice. So it could be, and I, I'm speaking from my experience as a head teacher now, it could be time to shadow some of your colleagues. It could be time to watch lessons and have time to reflect on what you've seen. It could be receiving additional advice on events that happen during the year. So, for example, you might start in September and then at the end of September, you might have your first parent-teacher consultation. Well, actually, that's quite daunting the first time you do it. So it might be around receiving advice around that. It might be that you want someone to look at the outcomes in the books that you're producing with the class because you need to know 
early on, do they match the expectations of the school? It's better to know earlier so that you can do something about it and you can focus your NQT induction time on that. So it's really using that time in a purposeful way. I think for me, it really supports um, staff well-being because there's clear a clear understanding around the expectation and there's a clear program of support in place that you know you will be getting. So I would say that's a that's a really you know a good way to support. Yeah, I think it's uh, definitely true that if you're on a PGCE course, uh, particularly the one here at Cardiff, you I mean you may almost not be aware of this as a student teacher, but your university tutors do kind of sit neutrally above the fray a little bit, just making sure the wheels stay on and that people get what they need and people are looked after. Once you're actually fully qualified and in those incredibly busy school environments, if you don't ask, you don't get. No, absolutely. And it's a case that, you know, and there's a balance to be gained, isn't there? Because you can't be pushy. Oh, no. <laughs> and seem to be the, you know, the mouthy one, the mouthy NQT who's come into the school. But at the same time, you do have a right to an induction programme. And it's important that you get that because you want to, you know, you're in it for the long haul. You want to make a success out of the career. So you've got to have the best start that you, you could possibly get. Great. And I guess that ring fence time as well, in the spirit of everything that you've said um, so far on this podcast episode, is to try and make time for inquiry as well, you know, as NQTs, to, to think deeply and to do some reading. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's uh, how lucky to get, you know, a percentage of time each week to have that time for those kind of activities. I think mm. it's wonderful. Mm. And, and just going to see other people teach mm. you learn so much mm. you learn so much about what they do and, mm. and and practice and 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 as a teacher you know you'll develop your own set of principles and and around what makes good teaching and it will be based on things that you've learned at college it'll be things that you'll see from your peers around you and it'll be a bit of yourself as well and and you'll shape that to make yourself the best teacher that you can be Great words of advice. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, so you you've kind of given us that you've given us lots to try. Yeah, I think one big something to try. You've isn't given it? us lots of well-being tips. Um, you mentioned the McLeod um, book that was kind of seminal earlier yeah. on. Is there anything you've been reading or listening to or you know engaging in recently that you would recommend to our listeners? There's been one out of all the research books I've read recently. I think the one that's made the biggest difference to me was I think it was called Co and wearing Mm -hmm. methods and methodologies. I think it's about 2017. I found that really interesting because it really broke down for me, you know, the whole kind of principles of research and really inspired. It it presented the information in a very uncomplicated way that I understood. Um, I really enjoyed reading it and it really re-energised me around kind of the principles of research, really. So I suppose that would be it great recommendation thank you very much and thank you for your time thank and you very much hopefully we'll have you back at some point once yes, you, once you finish back. the thing yes yeah. in about 10 years yeah <laughs> well very best of luck with thank the next thank you very steps. much thank you yeah thank you Paul and we will be back next time with another episode uh, in the meantime uh, bye for now That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was me, Paul Warren. To read more about how boys engage with comics, check out Understanding Comics by Scott McLeod. Alternatively, you can read my PhD when it's finished. The other book recommended today was Co and Waring's book, Research Methods and Methodologies in Education, published by Sage. We're all off to Beano Town to play some pranks. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm.